This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pastor Mike, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by The Witness, a black Christian collective. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at BurnsClan. Please follow at your own risk. And joining me as always to my left is the founder of The Witness, very extensive bio, the man, the myth, the legend, the two-time best-selling author, Mr. Blue Check Verified himself, Dr. Jamar Tisby. Jay, we got a heavy one today. A heavy one today. We're matching today. We're matching. On in, purpose. In at least the general attire and right, color. Right, um, Black hoodies for a reason, because 10 years ago, February 26, 2012, was the death and the killing of Trayvon Martin by George Zimmerman in Sanford, Florida. And we're today going to reflect upon what this date meant for us what maybe it didn't mean at the time that it means now and what this has meant for the broader black Christian movement and movements for justice over the past 10 years. It's hard to believe it's been 10, 10 years, Jay. years, bro, a decade, 10 years. I was as a historian, I'm always like, okay, what, what, what anniversaries are coming up related to black history and whatnot? And I can't remember how exactly I got on it, but I started thinking about the black lives matter movement. And then of course I began thinking about Trayvon Martin a kid, all right, yeah. he's 17 years old. And um, I was like, let me look this up because this might be 10 years. And, and then sure enough, February 26, 2022 is 10 years. Hmm. And when I think back on where I was, I want to hear where you were. It, like like that season yeah. of life, not, yeah, not like absolutely. when I heard, I was right here. I want to, th- so at that point, I was in my second semester of seminary. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had this organization called the Reformed African American Network at the point. Right. It was just a Facebook page and it had literally started just like three, four months before. So it was brand, brand new. Um, I was in a new city at a church that was intentionally multiracial black pastor. And I was like all in on this racial reconciliation stuff. Yeah. And I was convinced at that point that now was the time. Hmm. Now was a moment where we were going to see some type of breakthrough. I didn't know what it was going to be per se, but I just felt like we had this moment to really push forward the cause of racial reconciliation in a new way. Um, so we'll talk more about like reactions when, when we when we found out about this, but like what season of life were you hmm. in at that point? Yeah, that was my second year or so of being a youth pastor in Florida, actually third year, um, just entering into it, of being a youth pastor in Florida. And in this stage of life where as a 23, 24-year-old trying to find my own identity, and I remember how much of my blackness was hidden from me at that point. Yes, that's what I'm saying. And how much of even going to a black church, I resisted the 
full embrace of mm-hmm. my black self mm-hmm. and the people around me who I love their black selves and my black church in its fullness. And so in the midst of all of that, I remember how Trayvon hit me and I remember it not hitting me the same way as everyone else. Mm-hmm. And it, my reaction and response was very poor and something yeah. I look back on now with shame. Right. But, you know, I remember how much of that reform space mm-hmm. shaped how I even viewed myself in that season, how I even viewed uh, a young black man who was an image bearer that I didn't even know, but I could see him in my youth group right, <laughs> right. every single week. And I could not make that connection at that time, but that's where I was in the stage of life for sure. And I think that's what was striking nationally. Cause remember like this is, kind of just at the cusp of when twitter is starting to take off yes, um yes. so just, twitter so twitter was kind of that moment probably 2010 2011 where once you were on it once you got on it you were in it yeah and you didn't understand that at first and then you got in it and once you figured it out it was you were all in it. you were inundated with it. i remember <laughs> i would i would i would like quote myself and then tag myself <laughs> on Twitter. I was be like, by at Jamar Tisby. And my friends were like, no, man, you don't, you don't need to, it's from your, anyway, it was that That's new. That's hilarious. <laughs> but no, it was, it was, it was that new and it was that pop. And that was the first time I think we experienced a cultural moment. It's together. like Together that. on Twitter. And right, obviously right, there was right. Facebook, which was super popular, the most popular medium at that time. But Twitter was also in that. And I think, what I found was how, you know, to to borrow phrases that writers have used, how beautiful and terrible Twitter is, mm-hmm. that it was beautiful for drawing attention to perspectives that I did not know and people that needed to be illuminated. And it was also terrible for what they said about that, that young man. Yes. What they said about that image bearer. That's what it was. And then what they subsequently said about all the young men and women. Um, who have been killed at the hands of either the state or white supremacist vigilantes. So I've heard multiple people in recent times refer to this season that we're in politically, socially, culturally as an apocalypse in the classic sense of the mm. the term, mm. which means a revelation or a revealing. Yeah. And I think Trayvon Martin was a sort of a beginning of that apocalypse, that revealing in the sense of because of social media a lot of times, but also blog comments and, right. and various media, um, you got to see what people really thought. And for me, so so this is an apocal moment. A lot of people have compared Trayvon Martin's killing to Emmett Till's lynching. Mm-hmm. And I struggle with that because we actually have multiple moments, unfortunately, yeah. where we can make that parallel. But I will say the murder of Trayvon Martin stands out because it was a year later when his killer was acquitted mm-hmm. that the Black Lives Matter phrase became a cultural touch point for the uh, continuation and this wave of the black freedom struggle. Yeah. Uh, how how did that come about? Because I think it's important for us to constantly recount that story and make that a part yes, of common yes. black knowledge. Right. Well, first of all, three black women, right? Mm-hmm. So... Um, we were all waiting with bated breath, right? Which is one of the hallmarks of the black community in this country. When we experience injustice, we, we wait and we hope for the legal system to do what it's supposed to do. Right. And so, which is, which is incredible patience, right? Considering what we're going through. 
And then the verdict came back. This man was not guilty under standard ground laws. Right. Because he said he felt threatened. And then, and mind you, Trayvon's unarmed. He's on all that stuff. And, and he, so and Zimmerman pursued him. Yeah, he pursued him. Hunted him down. So when the verdict came back on Facebook, um, one of the women wrote, she called it a love letter to black people. Yeah. And she was basically just affirming our humanity. It was Patrice, right? Patrice Colors? Yeah, I think so. And she said, our lives matter. Yeah. And then one of her friends, compatriots, picked it up and said, black lives matter. Yes. And that was a thing that caught on. And it became this banner for the movement that mm. in many ways we're still in now. Yes. And that was all traced back to Trayvon Martin. So that's yes. a, a really, his death in particular is an incredibly important cultural moment historical moment this confluence of social media of a this is obama's first term Mm -hmm. as president so yeah yeah. we are still as a nation into the election the re-election right right so and him even saying he would be my he could be my son and that was like so controversial to some people controversial that was and how that became a thing it makes me sick bro like that was an issue that that very basic statement became a a he couldn't say the least little thing and like it was a surprise to people that we as black people can see ourselves in trayvon right right Right. that black women felt the burden my wife when when we were coming down here to record this podcast she reminded me but your tags are expired yeah and she was like nervous, nervous that I would get pulled over. Yeah. And so I stopped and spent an extra three hours just getting my tags updated before I made the long drive down here. And part of it was because as black women, when their black men go out, whether sons or brothers or husbands or what yeah. what, what have you, um, there's this burden of concern. Yes. And then yes. for us as black men, there's always this burden of being perceived as a threat. Yes. And that's what, for me, really stuck out about Trayvon Martin is because he was a black teen in a hoodie in this neighborhood where this man thought he wasn't supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And and I just like, I just felt it. I felt it viscerally. Yeah. yeah. How did you... What was your Christian response to Trayvon? <laughs> was okay, it, what yeah. do you believe? Do you look back on your Christian response to Trayvon and believe it was actually Christian? Because I look back on my response to Trayvon and don't think that it reflects the gospel. I felt like I was extremely callous. I felt like I was ashamed. Secondhand embarrassment. Yeah. They found this kid's Twitter well, account. What was your response? Well, my response was that, you know... It was it was along the lines. One of the most dangerous things and elements we actually don't talk about in urban youth work and ministry, even mm. in social work sometimes, is how familiarity with black teenagers can lead to contempt for black teenagers. What? Wow. And how in service and in teaching and in raising and in building, it can actually create within it um, a sense of resentment and a sense of angst and a sense of frustration and even a sense of bitterness towards black teens. Mm. And so I think for me, I I had youth ministry was so hard and it was so difficult. And I understood so little about myself as a black man at that time. And I had not done the work 
to understand myself that I mean, we did all the cool stuff and I'm not saying it was a total wash and there was no good that came out of it. There's a lot of good that came out of it. But what I also recognize is that when when the persistence of whoever you're serving doesn't receive and affirm your serving an insecure and immature person takes that and internalizes that. Mm. And then in that internalization imports that into all black. Well, this is the problem with. And at that time I was coming out of a raw, very raw right wing conservatism. And I was realizing, Oh yeah, it gets reckless here racially. Right. And I was recognizing all of that. And I was seeing that and my eyes were being open, but I could not import that same grace toward Trayvon yeah. And toward Sabrina Fulton's mother, mm-hmm. and toward I couldn't, I couldn't mm-hmm. give them that same mm-hmm. grace, mm-hmm. and I couldn't give them that same mercy, and also couldn't even understand that he wasn't doing anything wrong. Right, exactly. That, that was it just I part, didn't even yeah. understand. Like right. I just, and and so there was a lack of empathy. There was a um, also I think an exceptionalism that I had to repent for. That being a black man in white space meant that or being a black man around in proximity to white spaces even if you weren't directly in white spaces it means that you're seen as hope for unity <laughs> right and you were talking about Absolutely. reconciliation it just it just felt like you were hope for unity hope for reconciliation and so people leaned upon you and you wanted to keep that spot mm-hmm, mm-hmm. even if that wasn't your church you still wanted to keep that spot and keep that status so now i look back on it with shame because what right. should have woken me up was actually something that I didn't pay attention to. Well, we were new to it. I mean, like you said, this was kind of the first of these kinds of moments that we shared nationally and on social media together. So I remember not quite knowing how to react or or how to feel. Um, Whereas today, something like this happens, I know immediately, you know, right. righteous anger. Exactly. You know, and, know what and to do, how to do it, the, all the, the life and the, and the dignity of, of, of the individuals involved. Um, but back then, I was also on the tip of, I had just finished being a middle school principal mm. and we were a college prep school. So it was about uniforms, tucking in your shirt, wearing the <laughs> Respectability. belt. Yeah, in the most negative sense, right? Like 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 you had to conform or assimilate in some way in order to get what we put forward as success. Right. And so from that standpoint, I'm like, well, why 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 don't black teens just do XYZ, right? Mm-hmm. But in that moment really though, I mean, for me it was an eye-opening experience that that unity that evangelicals have been talking about was a false unity. Hmm. So it was like a punch in the gut and a slap in the face all at the same time. It was a revelation and it was a sense of betrayal yeah. as well because I'm dedicating all my life and energy to this. So we right. had started the African-American Leadership Initiative, right. ran like I said, I was at this multiracial, tr- like I was all in. You're doing everything you were supposed to be Waving doing. the banner for the PCA, for Reformed Theology, and here is this clear tragedy. Yeah. And then, like you said, all the comments start coming. Yeah. And then by these leaders, these evangelical leaders, these Reformed leaders who have books out and videos out in large churches, and they're responding with callousness toward it. I'll never and I'm forget. like, what's happening? I'll never forget, it was a pastor. And this was the first moment where I tilted my head to the side 
and I had done that a couple of times throughout some of the responses that I was hearing from people because it seemed unnecessarily aggressive from white Christians. Mm. And even me back then, where I was like, I don't think he's guilty, but I was like, uh, just kind of weird. Like, why would you say that about, you know, black people, you know? And so I, I saw this reformed pastor who was actually right near Sanford. And he said something to the effect of on Twitter, um, we're not going to say anything about the verdict on Sunday, but we will say a lot about the gospel of Jesus. Like it was some like, you know, like yeah, it was a flex. Like that was a flex. And, yeah. I, and I was like, no, I don't know about that. You know, like, is there a space where we can actually engage with this? And even in my most, I was like, oh, right, no about right. that. Like, that don't, something that don't right. sound right. Yeah, that don't yeah, hit right. Exactly. And actually, you know, really and truly the response by white Christians to the acquittal, reform white Christians in, in particular to the acquittal and the not guilty verdict of George Zimmerman was actually a seed that led me to do some deeper research. And actually through that research is where I discovered James Cone. Mm. That was the first time I'd actually discovered James Cone mm. a few months after that. Wow. And so it's, it's wild. I don't know how I got there, but I'm just yeah. like, yeah, I end up seeing James Cone and seeing James Cone helped me to see that in 2014, when, you know, the reform response was similar to Mike and, Brown, yeah. you know, black evangelical, you know, reformed apologists like Vody Bauckham say that it was Mike Brown's fault. Bro. <laughs> well, no, no, I, I can say. Say so he reaped what he sowed. He yeah. reaped what he sowed, you know, I mean. So and so now I can see through right, that. Right. There was and a, it was the, traced back to it Trayvon. It was traced back to yeah. Trayvon. It woke me up, but in a way. <laughs> woke yeah anyway but it, it, it helped me to <laughs> it helped me to come to realization okay they're gonna use that clip see he said it he said it oh yeah it woke nothing. me up say whatever you want to say i'm already been on woke preacher clips it, is what it, is. it woke me up in the way that i feel like that's right that's um, right i needed to be that's what's so critical about trayvon martin's terrible tragic yeah murder and and for me and y'all mark it here and tag us, or at least me. I don't want to get you involved in well, trouble. Well, yeah, what you about to I'm say? I'm just saying what I've already told you. <laughs> okay, got you. This is the unraveling. If we had to pick one chronological moment to point to, I think the murder of Trayvon Martin would be the moment we point yes. to as the beginning yes. of the end of the Evangelical yes. Racial Reconciliation Project. And let me, yes, okay, let's stay there. And let's take a quick break. Um, we need to breathe. Let's take a quick break because we're about to go off. Let's take a quick break. We need to breathe. <laughs> and then we'll be right back here on Pass the Mic. Hey, folks, Jamar Tisby here, and I am so grateful for your support, your listening, your engagement with the Pass the Mic podcast. I'm wondering if this podcast has been helpful to you, challenging, encouraging, if you would consider becoming a paid subscriber to the podcast for as little as $1 an episode. You can help keep this good work going. Just visit patreon.com slash pass the mic. That's patreon.com slash pass the mic. We appreciate you for your support. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive. 
Finding a Faith Strong Enough to Hold Us Written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter Grieve, Breathe, Receive Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, Breathe, Receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. You know, Jay, you were talking about the end or the marking of the beginning of the end of this racial reconciliation project. And it's so wild to think that we really believed in the early to mid 2000s from 2000 to really 2010. I mean, even going back, mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Shaniqua Walker Barnes does a tremendous job of tracking the Promise Keepers movement, you know, mm-hmm. in her book, I bring, my, I bring the Voices of My People. And... It's wild to think how sold out we were about racial reconciliation or as at that time, John Piper was saying racial harmony. (laughs) Right. And, you know, we had no concept of solidarity, of justice. Yes. It was all racial reconciliation based upon, quote unquote, the gospel. Right. Whatever, whoever defined it as or the purity of the gospel which seemed to always exclude those people who have been doing justice work mm. and seemed to always keep away those people who have been actually working towards correcting the injustice and disunity that existed in society. Right. Right. And so what, what, what provoked that? When did you know that that was it? When did you know that? Right. Ah, it's about to break open. Yeah. I don't think I knew quite at that moment, but I could feel it in me my confidence and hope in this racial reconciliation project was fading right very quickly and it was a combination of things right so it was Trayvon Martin's murder it was the acquittal it was the reaction of white evangelicals it's also me in the seminary in the church in right. uh these spaces where i'm trying to do this work and discovering that it's controversial right i remember uh one of the it was the first presentation i gave on like race and justice from a reformed and evangelical perspective it was at uh the national conference one of the breakout sessions and i remember it was so nerve-wracking to prepare because i needed to feel like i had uh, proactively addressed every possible objection mm. that white folks would bring. Mm. And it was starting to have that sense that if I talk about this, like I think it needs to be talked about, I'm going to take shots. Absolutely. And so that was, and then this apocalyptic revelation that you get it in blog posts and comments on social media of how white evangelicals and reform folks really, really feel. Yeah. About black people yeah. and not just about the, oh, but not you kind of black people <laughs> in their spaces. It you know leaped what I mean? out. It leaped out. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't know that it was crumbling really. Exaggerated till, swagger. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that it was crumbling really till Mike Brown and yeah. um, the uprisings around that. Yeah. But the rumblings, I think, could be felt all the way back in 2012. I think what really was visceral to me now looking back on what I saw from black community is 
many of us in our expression that I was watching were bemoaning and disheartened and heartbroken at the fact that this was a boy. Hmm. You know, this is a teenager, this is a kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it doesn't matter how tall he was, doesn't matter how big he was, doesn't matter any of that. He was a kid, you know, and as a kid, I think it's just so striking how callous people are to black children and how how little grace and mercy and how little consideration and empathy they have for the black experience in a child's body. Yeah. And seeing his mother's tears and his father's tears uh, beyond all the racial reconciliation stuff that we talk about or justice or all these things, a mother lost a son. Yeah. A father lost a son. And thinking about who Trayvon Martin could have become, like that's one of the things that I think now, 10 years after I'm saying, who could Trayvon have become? He'd be 27. Who could Mike Brown have become? Mm -hmm. Who could Tamir Rice have become? Mm -hmm. And their bodies were taken from us without redress, without consequence, with with no with no uh, opposition. The state said it was okay. No one's responsible. No, no one's responsible. No one's accountable. No one's responsible. Who could I, who could Ahmad Arbery have become? You know, when Breonna Taylor typed on Twitter that she was excited about the new year, the same year that would cost her her life, that would take her life. And that's the presence of the most amount of regret and shame as yeah. it relates to these situations is that we miss the opportunity to sit and mourn the loss of a dream within the body mm. and the loss of a story mm. and the abrupt end when more life wasn't just possible, but was necessary yeah. to complete their arc. Right. And I think about how many people talk to me and I'm friends with who are much older than me and who say, yeah, when I was 17, I was wilding out. <laughs> or when I was 17, I was just doing stuff. I didn't know what I wanted to be. Right. It's not even to say Trayvon Martin was wilding out. He was, was just like, he was just a way kid. Back from the convenience store. You know, just saying, hey, I was a kid. Uh, you know, I didn't know who I wanted to be, what I wanted to become, who I could become. But what I what I do know is I had the opportunity to to find my purpose. Right. Right. And in my living, I found that, you know, and we would be mistaken. I mean, we, so we often try to make meaning of these senseless murders. Right. Yeah. And say, well, you know, it's a tragedy, but his death kind of awakened the movement. Right. Y'all, we shouldn't need black death yeah. to arouse our Come consciences. On. Yeah. That's unnecessary. Trayvon Martin should still be alive. He should still be here. And it shouldn't take hmm. the blood of black children to remind us of the dignity of black people. Yes. Yes. That should be a given. That is what justice looks like. Where we recognize in every body. Yeah. In every body. Hmm. the identity, the dignity, the image, and the likeness of being made in God's image. I wouldn't have been able to articulate any of that at that yes. point. Yes. But there was something visceral, you know? <sighs> Absolutely. And, and as a result of all of this, here we are now. So we've transitioned. I use the words racial justice rather than racial reconciliation. right. right. It was a big part of our story in becoming the witness, mm -hmm. a big part of what shaped 
the themes and the focus of this podcast, Pass the Mic, and more nationally, you know, broadly, a big part of um, the momentum and the push and also the pushback to change the state of race relations today. So I just wanted to take a moment to recognize Mm. Trayvon Martin as a human being, Mm. as an individual, Mm. as a young black boy, recognize the sorrow and the pain of his family and friends who Mm. still are aching and feeling that hole and that loss and recognize what his death, what the acquittal, what yes. all of that meant yes. for for who we are as a nation and, yes. and we, who we ought to be. Yes. Yeah. Hmm. Rest in power, Trayvon Martin. We hold space for you, brother. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.